Welcome to Encounter. I'm Ed Kessler and today we're attempting to tackle the issue of anti-Semitism. My guest today is Daniel Stetsky, Senior Research Fellow from the Institute of Jewish Policy Research. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. We're going to begin with David, my partner in crime, who is going to begin the discussion, raise a few questions and tell us why is anti-Semitism coming to the fore in the public square. Over to you, David. I'll start with a few statistics. We'll hear more precise statistics from Daniel later on. Community Securities Trust says that in 2017, anti-Semitic hate incidents were over 1,300 and a 34% rise in violent assaults. According to Daniel's own research, there are some anti-Semitic views expressed by about 30% of the population, and there are hardcore anti-Semitic views expressed by a small proportion, 2%. It's all been, I suppose, focused for us by the um, Corbyn Labour Party row, which is familiar, but it might be useful to go through the timeline a bit, because, because it's a strange row. It's been sort of fueled by going back into social media, as a, and it's built, it's like a sort of forest fire, it's gone back on itself so, uh, somehow. I think the recent thing started with Naz Shah. Guido Fawkes discovered a tweet which she made in 2016, before she was elected, saying that Israel could be relocated in the USA. She apologised profusely and, and sincerely for that when it's it was discovered. On, on that one, Dave, with Naz Shah, is that she made this remark clearly anti-Semitic, yeah. recognised it was anti-Semitic, apologised, and the apology was accepted. So it just shows how much things have changed since then. W when was that? That was 2016, Guido Fawkes. So it's just a couple of years ago. Yeah, Interesting. Uh, and of course it wasn't helped by Ken Livingstone jumping in with his controversialist. Well, Ken is a controversialist. He's a controversialist. So what, what, did anything, he, um, yeah. what, what did he say? He, he pointed out that Hitler was um, supportive of Zionism in the mid-30s, thought that there should be a homeland. Yes, it was but, a way of getting, getting Jews out. But the way, he's, the way Ken said it yes. was, was his usual sort of slightly weird. He's a provocateur. Yeah, provocateur. So then people started trawling back. It turns out that in 2010, Jeremy Corbyn attended a Holocaust Memorial Day event where someone compared Israel to Nazi Germany, and on revelation of that, he apologised. In 2012, he defended a crudely anti-Semitic mural and said it shouldn't be painted out. Whether that's willful or just visual art Philistinism, I don't know. Then there was the 2014 wreath-laying in Tunis, at an event where Munich Olympic terrorists were memorialised. And he sort of apologised for that, but in a very evasive sort of way. Then in July this year, three Jewish newspapers ran a front page saying that a Corbyn government would pose an existential threat to the Jewish community, which is very strong. It's very strong, and three British newspapers yeah. who, who rarely see eye to eye put the same headline out. And I suppose what it does show, and we're going to get onto this with Daniel, is how deeply the Jewish community in all its varieties feel about this shift and this anti-Semitic discourse in the public square, which we're going to get onto in a moment. Yeah, and, and then after that, there was another clip, a Corbyn clip of him saying that Zionists had no sense of English irony. Perhaps he meant British irony, I don't know what he meant. And Lord Sachs called that the most divisive piece of political discourse since Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood, which is, again, pretty... 
powerful, strong mm. read. Mm. And then, sort of taking it up to almost now, the Margaret Hodge and Frank Field turned strongly against him. So that's the sort of timeline of what's happened in the Labour Party. And you mentioned there this sense of unease within the Jewish community. And it occurred to me that this is a sort of human characteristic, that once people start feeling under attack, they get twitchy and they react strongly and they perhaps sometimes lash out. And it's a self-perpetuating bad situation. I think the Jewish community, or perhaps it's better to say Jewish communities, feels very uncomfortable and it's unexpected to be in this spotlight. The rise of anti-Semitism you outlined in some of the facts from the CST, the Community Security Trust, the headlines in the uh, Jewish newspapers, do add to a deep sense of unease, which, frankly, Jews didn't expect. So we, we've, got to, uh, we've got to discuss this rather troublesome question of definitions. How would you define anti-Semitism? How would you define anti-Zionism? Thanks for that, David. <laughs> Your starter for 10. The standard definition, and I suppose it's the one we should be using, is what's called the IHRA, which for, for those who don't know stands for the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And they came up, international body of scholars came up with a, a, a definition. I, I think that's what we should use. And let me just read the very uh, short definition, because it's not the definition per se that became controversial in the uh, Corbyn and the the Labour Party, but it was the examples. But let me just read it. Anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property, towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. And there's one thing I'd like to bring up, because this does come down to a large extent to Israel-Palestine and the way that works with people. It's this sense from the left in Britain that there's a sort of Israeli exceptionalism when it comes to, what can I call it, bad behaviour, bad policy. And it's sort of worse than anyone else. Now, you can say what you like about the government of Israel, but I think it's nonsense to to put it in that exceptionalist category. Yes, I would agree, and I'm sure we're going to get on to questions of anti-Israeli discourse and anti-Zionist discourse, but you know, it falls foul of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which is to exceptionalise the state of Israel in such a way that um, becomes so clearly focused and so clearly over and against everything else that you have to ask yourself the question, if I'm spending all this time criticising Israel, what's going on and not criticising other regimes? And I think fundamentally, David, it denies the sense of the self-definition of Judaism, which again falls foul of the um, definitions of anti-Semitism. Because Judaism, and it's, I, I know my, some of my Christian and Muslim students find this hard, but Judaism is not simply a religion. Judaism is not simply a culture. Judaism also includes a sense of peoplehood, the sense of attachment to a particular piece of real estate. And it's that lack of realisation of that complexity of Jewish self-understanding and what Judaism is, that inability to see land as integral to self-understanding. Not that all Jews see the land as central, but Judaism is really that, if I can use the term, holy trinity of religion, that is God-centred, of culture, and land. And if you deny one aspect of that, then you are falling foul 
of definitions of anti-Semitism. It's interesting in that regard that I think there are some ultra-Orthodox Jewish groups who oppose the West Bank uh, policies. Of there are, what, what's interesting about anti-Zionism, and I'm sure we will get onto that um, in our conversation with Daniel, is that you don't have to be non-Jewish to be anti-Semitic. I mean, there are self-hating English, Welsh, Scots, Christians and Muslims and Hindus who you could call existentially opposed to their own faith. Likewise, there are Jews as well who are denying aspects of Judaism and there are pockets in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish camp who deny the validity of the state of Israel because they are waiting for God to bring the Messiah and redeem the Jewish people. Therefore, this they see as a human-made anti-God type measure. Likewise, there are hardline, secular, Jewish universalists, if you like, who um, deny the parochialism of land and the particularism may be a better term. So yes, that's absolutely right. I, I read a comment by a Jewish commentator, which I must say made my hair stand on end on, in, with regard to Jewish anti-Semitism. And he drew a comparison between the barrier fence being built across the West Bank and the ghetto walls that were in European towns until the 18th century. I thought, gosh. One thing that worries me is the hyperbole that's used today in social media and communication and conversation and the extreme language that's used and circulated and it permeates society and it's a worry. It's a fundamental worry. So we've got this odd combination of this sort of immediacy of global communication and the irony that with all this communication, we are giving each other a less respectful hearing, part of what the Wolf Institute seeks to challenge and overcome. And this plays out in anti-Semitic discourse. Just one other thing about attitudes to Israel before we go to Daniel, if I may. The attitude seems to me to have changed dramatically, although over a fairly long time span. If you go back to the 1960s, I think lots of people rather admired Israel. They thought the kibbutz system was very interesting. They'd like to sign up for it. It had a sort of socialist character to it in some respects. And that's changed, hasn't it? I don't know, maybe starting with the Six-Day War, which was such a sort of immediate triumph. And people have turned and taken a different view about Israel and the settlements of the West Bank. The politics of shifting sands, David. Yeah. You're quite right. In the early years, for example, of the creation of the State of Israel, it was supported politically, not by the United States, who it takes for granted today, but by the Soviet Union. Its arm, its military weapons were provided by France and the Soviet Union, not by the United States. It began to shift in the 70s with the rise of Menachem Begin and the Likud party and his prime ministerialship when he wooed the Christian right in the United States. And that was the beginning of the evangelical reassessment of its relationship with the state of Israel and the move of the United States towards supporting Israel, politically and military, whereas the Soviet Union moved to support Arab countries. So yes, there are shifting sands. The other thing to mention in terms of shifting sands is of course the move towards the political right in Israel. We've had a Netanyahu government, an increasingly right-wing nationalist government in Israel, 
And this mirrors, of course, what's happening in many other countries. You think of Hungary, you think of Poland, and dare I say, the autocratic president of the United States. So you've got shifting sands that are specific to Israel, and you've also got Israel in the context of the political global shift in politics, particularly in the last 10 years. And the novelist Harold Jacobson, who I think is a pretty good commentator on these matters, has referred to, depressingly, he says, has referred to a return to a medieval swamp where Jews are the authors of all ills. Howard Jacobson, of course, has this ability to depict a sense in a graphic way like that. But there is a sense of a sort of medieval mindset that we're falling into, not just actually about Jews, but about all others, whether the other is a Jew or a Muslim or a woman or a homosexual or whatever. And we are very good at othering people today. And the polarization and othering is targeted against many groups. But of course, today, we're talking about the targeting of Jews and of old-fashioned Jew hatred. But maybe you and I have done enough to talk as best we can in our limited understanding of questions to do with anti-Semitism. And perhaps, David, it's time to bring in our expert, don't you think? I do. Daniel, welcome. Daniel. welcome. You've been very patient as David and I have tried to provide a context to our conversation. And perhaps we should begin by explaining a little about the work of the Institute for Jewish Policy Research. What is that body? Thank you. Thank you for having me. And the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, or JPR, as we're known, currently we have three main areas of activity. First of all, uh, we generate research that supports planning and policy development. Uh, we do it for various Jewish organizations, schools, synagogues, care providers. We also support the activities of non-Jewish organizations to the extent that they concern Jews. And in that sense, we could say we uh, do what it says on the tin. Secondly, we maintain a line of research into demography of Jews in the UK and in Europe. So before we can tackle any policy question, we need to know a great deal uh, about how many Jews exist in any locality and what their characteristics are. So any meaningful targeted policy would need that. And finally, and it's the main reason I'm here today, we conduct empirical research into the attitudes of non-Jews towards Jews, and in particular, anti-Semitism. We explore questions such as how much anti-Semitism is there, what trajectory does it follow? How much certainty we have in measurement? Is it sensible to measure such a thing? And also to what extent and how it affects the lives of Jews in Europe and in the United Kingdom. And in relation to this last aspect, I would like to point out that JPR has a rather long history. If we choose to go to the roots, we have to go, we have to travel back almost 80 years and we have to go to switch continents as well. JPR was originally established in America in the 40s. And it's only natural that the researchers agenda of an institute with such a long history would evolve, and JPR agenda evolved, but anti-Semitism was always on the agenda in some shape or form, and that's interesting. And I can argue that in that sense, JPR agenda mirrors the core concerns of the Jews. Thank you. So your own research, Daniel, um, you've looked into the nature and extent of anti-Semitism in everyday life, in ordinary life, ordinary people. What, what have you uncovered? So ultimately what we did in that particular survey, we asked two separate sets of questions. There were eight questions covering classic old-fashioned antisemitism, and each person received a particular score. So if the person said they saw Jews in negative light 
eight times the person received score eight. And I must emphasize these were all very old-fashioned anti-Semitic stereotypes. For example, Jews control the world, Jews get rich at the expense of others, the Holocaust never happened. We then asked in a different place, at a slightly different time, nine questions that were uh, critical of Israel, so to speak. And uh, these questions never mentioned Jews. Now, uh, by the way, to say uh, in advance, so the whole idea of definitions of antisemitism is that I had to get around that somehow. And the way I got around that somehow, whenever I talk about um, anti-Israelism, anti-Zionism, mm -hmm. I use the turn of speech critical of Israel. Right. Because ultimately what we did in the survey to get to the bottom line, these expressions are critical of Israel, more critical, less critical, but they're factually critical of right. Israel, no matter how you define them later. But that's in, that, that doesn't mean that that's anti-Semitism to be critical of Israel. Or exactly. Does it, 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 it doesn't. doesn't. Perhaps we assumed from the beginning there was a presumption of innocence. Yes. If people say to us or to anyone that they're not anti-Semitic, they're just anti-Israel or anti-Zionist or critical of Israel, that's what they say. I'll take that. There's a presumption of innocence. Their guilt will have to be proven, but it can't be assumed from the beginning. If, yes, if so you, you start from the presumption of innocence, we start that someone's from innocent before yes. they're, they're guilty. Yes, mm. yes exactly. That's and then you important. build up a case, as it were, as yes. if it was a, a, a trial, yeah. um, that you know they go, go through certain steps. and as it were, they, they prove themselves guilty, is that right? Yes. For example, we asked people whether they, whether they agree or disagree that um, Israel conducts ethnic cleansing against the Palestinians, that Israel is the source of all troubles. These kind of questions that obviously have nothing to do with classic antisemitism as appears in historical books. And we gave people a score in relation to those questions, and it's a separate score. So far, the presumption of innocence. What we did later at an analytical stage, we simply tested whether these two variables are correlated, whether people who are more anti-Semitic in a classic sense also tend to be more anti-Israel or critical of Israel. And what we found empirically is that these attitudes were associated. The more anti-Israel, critical of Israel you are, the more anti-Semitic you tend to be. So the attitudes do not overlap, but they're strongly associated. And do you get a sense of the direction? I mean, if, I'm, if I fulfill the old-fashioned tropes of anti-Semitism, Jews control the world, Jews control the media, am I more likely to be critical of Israel? Does it go that way, or does it go, I'm so critical of Israel, and I've fulfilled the anti-Semitic parameters that you've set, therefore, I then become old-fashioned in, in the tropes that I speak? Yeah, I think the usual problem in this domain with quantitative research of the kind that I described is that we cannot determine uh, the direction. So th this is open still to the debate and will be open for the de debate for a while. What causes what? What came earlier? Whether people are anti-Semitic and that facilitates the adoption of positions of that are critical of Israel, or they become critical of Israel somehow and then adopt anti-Semitic worldviews, this is still open to the debate. It doesn't look pretty, no matter how you look at it, mm. but we don't, we're not sure about the directionality. But fundamentally, if I fulfill the old-fashioned anti-Semitic tropes of Jews controlling the world, owning all the money, I'm more likely to be anti-Semitic in my language about Israel. Yes. And if I'm fundamentally critical of Israel in terms of the exceptionalism that David and I talked about at the very beginning, I'm again more likely to be anti-Semitic in the old-fashioned tropes. Precisely. Precisely. Yes. And, that, and that's what your, your research has revealed.
that is precisely the case, and I consider it, and we consider it in general, a, a, more, a very innovative point. Because if you look at the classic books about classic historical compositions written by great minds in the study of antisemitism, for example, Euda Bauer, Robert Westrich, and others, very often they analyze rhetorically, present antisemitism and anti-Zionism next to each other. And very often, because they own the subject very well, they have no problem of saying, these things look a lot like each other, but we cannot give you the proof that they're the same. We presented, not for the first time in the history of this subject, but one of the rare times where the connection between the two types of sentiments could be demonstrated, that it exists. And of course, people like Yehuda Bauer and Robert Wistrich are of a certain older generation, aren't Precisely. they? And, they're and also you're... historians and the, you know, statisticians. Uh, right. And so what you're bringing in as a younger scholar, in comparison with Yehuda Bauer, we all are, even David, but you're also bringing the, um, the discipline of statistics and the, the methods you've used to study it. Precisely. I think this particular area, and it's not the, the only area of human knowledge that suffered from uh, underinvestment in, in terms of quantitative studies. It wasn't entirely clear how to ask these questions, how to test those hypotheses. We are slowly getting there. So that's, the, that's where the role of the Institute for Jewish Policy Research now, that's the innovative side that we bring to the study of antisemitism. And when, what was the period of your research? Because David started with a few quotes, bringing us up almost to the present day. But what years were you um, studying this? The JPR antisemitism survey, which I uh, was relating to, took place between 2016 and 17, on the cusp of those years. So it's quite recent. The picture that David related to previously is true still. Things don't change very quickly. People tend to think that things change quickly as a result of certain political development, particular scandals. They do not. What we found that about 2% of people could be called classic antisemites, hardcore antisemites whose view is mature, quite elaborate, and rich in detail. We gave them eight negative statements about Jews, and every single time they agreed with, well, six, seven, or eight statements of this kind. So I think it would be fair to say that these are people who are anti-Semites in a conventional political sense. We also found, as David pointed out before, that the diffusion of anti-Semitic ideas is wider than just 2%. It's about 30%, and it's what I want to emphasize here is that it would be unjust to call 30% of people anti-Semites. That is not so. But it would be necessary for us to switch attention from the hardcore anti-Semites to people who may have just one or two ideas. They may hold them rather weakly, but they have them. And this means that they exist, they vocalize those ideas, and they're heard by Jews. Jewish lives are impacted by these people as well. And that's partly because we Jews, and I include myself in this, are rather sensitive to aspersions about Jews and Judaism, whether they're just heard once or twice or, or heard regularly. Yes. Is, is this what you meant, Daniel, when you talked about elastic anti-Semitism? Is, is that what it is? What do you mean by elastic anti-Semitism? Yes, it is precisely the call, the plea, really, for alternative measurements of the, the whole concept of anti-Semitism. We inherited and it's a beautiful tradition <laughs> in statistics, we measure things often in, in binary way. 
For example, you would see publications of many organizations involved in study of antisemitism who would say that the hardcore antisemites are 2%, or let's say 5%. It's on that scale always. Now, the question for me was always why to focus on them? How often do we see them? How often do they even interact with Jews? We need to pay attention to people who are in the middle. They may say something which may be interpreted in a particular way by a Jewish individual, but they matter. So we need to introduce elasticity in how we understand the reality of a particular type of hate. It exists beyond the, the core at lesser instances, but it matters. It matters because presumably it can get stronger or get weaker at different periods of time. Yes, but mostly that, that is obviously a hypothesis. But what, one thing is sure, that 30% diffusion of anything, of any phenomenon, is quite often occurring. And I will give an example from a more familiar area. Okay, we all know everybody, somebody who smokes, or we see people who smoke. Well, if you look at the uh, statistics produced by the ONS, the proportion of smokers in the society is 16 16% of people currently smoke. The diffusion of antisemitism is 30. So what does it actually mean in terms of probability of encounter? And we may say Jews are sensitive to this particular issue due to particular Jewish history, but really they don't have to because 30% diffusion is rather high probability of encountering it. The other thing that I must say, an additional aspect is that in a course of natural conversation where people hear remarks they may think are anti-Semitic, the normal conversations are not conducive to digging and trying to find out what exactly the person who made this comment meant. If somebody makes an offensive or semi-offensive remark about Jews or Judaism or Israel, the typical response of a Jewish individual is not to give that person a questionnaire to fill in so they know what the person thinks on all other aspects. You can calculate the score. That doesn't happen. What happens is the people remain with a certain suspicion. And if it happens once, twice, thrice, you accumulate a certain luggage, emotional luggage. Well, thank you, Daniel. I think that's uh, quite a lot for us to reflect on in the first half, and we're going to come back in part two. You're listening to Encounter, the podcast from the Wolf Institute. If you like what you hear, click subscribe to hear our latest episodes coming up soon, incarceration, fundamentalism and food. But now back to the show. Welcome back. Daniel, I wanted to ask you a general question about this sort of survey work you do and statistics, because it's always bothered me that you talk to people and you hand out questionnaires and you perhaps they're influenced by your presence, they think about what you want them to say. I mean, how secure do you think these responses are? I'm sure you must have thought about that. Yes, I think um, one of the... This is actually a question that I get asked often. Ultimately, I think the, uh, the code, the contemporary code, in, in our behaviour, we are polite. When we present to people hateful statements about Jews, and we ask them, do you agree with this statement? So, of course, there's a suspicion that they will simply not say this to you. Now, there, there's some comforting news. Survey methodology knows to some extent how to deal with that particular issue. One thing is that both us and others have conducted enough surveys about attitudes to different groups. And the figures that you and I quoted before, they return to us from very different surveys. Some of the surveys are filled in online. 
and we chose to conduct our surveys online for this one one of the reasons is that it gives people a lot of opportunities to respond honestly they're not watched the second technique to get around trustworthiness is to offer people different questions sometimes we offer them questions where they can say i don't know or i prefer not to say and a lot of people who have something to hide who don't want to offend will choose that option we can also give them questions in the same setting which don't provide that option and see what happens then we compare the results typically people who choose prefer not to say or don't know when they can when they can't do it they will choose what's on their heart really we can compare these two sets of results and see to what extent our conclusions in the end of the day are sensitive to the techniques and again there are comforts in news we we did this particular experimentation we conducted it in some surveys and no matter how we turn the crystal ball the prevalence of hardcore antisemitism in britain is rather low but there's a different sort of stereotyping isn't there i mean i might think of, of the jewish community as being highly intelligent highly competent which is i think a sort of stereotype that i've got and and i might at the same time say that black americans are very good jazz musicians compared with the rest of the population are those stereotypes equally mistaken or are they positive or are they based on the truth in some way I, i'm not sure i think it's an interesting one in 2012 which is now way in the past before any scandals uh, affecting the, the left the labor the european union agency for fundamental rights commissioned the survey it was a survey of jewish perceptions and jewish experiences of antisemitism and jpr conducted that survey in partnership with ipsos mori and in that survey for the first time as far as i know we presented to jews various you could call them stereotypes but things that people say about jews and we asked jews do you think these things are antisemitic and the selection of those stereotypes if you wish was very wide it started with things like holocaust never happened holocaust was greatly exaggerated israel should be boycotted but we also inserted a few questions about for example how jews look jews have particular features they look in a particular way and we asked jews on this uh, this opportunity whether they thought any of this was antisemitic typically from the jewish point of view the factual statements about jews no matter what they are are not perceived as antisemitic what is perceived rather unanimously as antisemitic are any ideas that have to do any criticism any doubt in relation to the holocaust this feature is very high something like 90% jews would say that when people say that holocaust was exaggerated that's antisemitic about 70% would say when i hear that jews control the economy that is antisemitic when you come to the factual descriptions of jews a very small proportion of jews say that's antisemitic behavior moreover when uh, somebody criticizes israel as simple as that criticizes israel for something about 6% of jews think that it's definitely antisemitic so there's a, only 6% yeah. so there's a great degree of discernment about what how jews diagnose all the statements so much of anti-semitism is tied up with in, in the public mind uh, and in the public discourse with anti-zionism anti-israelism yeah. uh, it's become it's become a sore a running sore 
particularly of course in the Labour Party and in the dis disputes and in the definition, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Why is that the case? Yes, I think they're partly due to two reasons. First of all, what people say, and the second reason is what people don't say. So let us see what people actually say, somehow capture it. The Jewish community says, a significant uh, proportion of people in Jewish community say, labor preoccupation with criticism of all things Israel is anti-Semitic. The labor and the far left say in the response, it's not. It's just criticism of Israel, and it's a legitimate position. And some of them would also say, back to Jews, you're manipulating us. You want to silence us. So you bring the gravest accusation, the completely discredited political view of anti-Semitism, and you call what we think anti-Semitism to silence us. Now, who can be the arbiter of this? So let us allow the science to be the arbiter. And again, in JPR survey of anti-Semitism, we offered a, a very convincing proof of the connection between old-fashioned classic anti-Semitism and the criticism of Israel. We simply showed that these things are related to each other. They do not overlap completely, and it's also very important to understand, but they're related to each other. So arguably, arbitrage of this kind only takes you so far. Anybody on the left can say, well, fine, I accept your findings. You found something in the survey, that's fine. But you found a rule, but I'm an exception to the rule. I'm that person who makes it non-overlapping relationship. So the statistical arbitrage only stretches so far. So I will now, I will now go to uh, things that are not said. And I think they are critical to removing this particular obstacle in the conversation between the Jewish community or Jewish communities and the Labour Party on the left. What hasn't been said is what you said before yourself eloquently, but we don't hear it often enough. There are things that we all hold dear. People, families, nations hold certain things dear. Old photos, old records, school reports of our children. This doesn't require any explanation. It makes us human. And Israel is something like that. There is a connection of kinship between Jews everywhere and in Israel. 90% of Jews belonging to the Jewish community in Britain visited Israel. 70% of Jews here in Britain have relatives in Israel, which makes hearing fierce criticism of Israel unbearable. Now, whether this criticism of Israel, anti-Semitic or not, is in a way neither here nor there. It's this essential point that the Jewish community needs to clarify to itself and then convey to whoever needs to be convinced. And so far, it hasn't been done anywhere near to how much it should have been done. Now, when such clarification is made, it should induce, and hopefully it will, some process of evaluation on the left where they ask the questions, why are position critical of Israel so established? And they are. Our survey findings tell us that the left is ahead of all political groups in relation to the criticism of Israel. So why is this so? Maybe it has something to do with the Soviet influences on the Western left in the 60s, 70s, 80s. At that time, the Soviet Union tried to export its own revolution. And with that came anti-Zionism. And so the left needs to ask itself, does it want to pursue this critical of Israel agenda? How much is it is due to inertia? And is it worth doing given that it alienates a particular ethnic group in the domestic front?
It's a very interesting question about the, the movement of ideas from the Soviet Union to the far left in that period. It's always struck me that it's tied up with a kind of anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, almost anti-Americanism that sits in the far left. Now that may be to do with the Soviet Union, but it's also, it's a symbol, it's a totem. So for many who hold this extremely critical position on Israel, which sometimes falls into this anti-Semitic discourse that you've outlined, is tied up with this sense of being opposed to any form of of colonialism, and and Israel, in their eyes, represents that most of all. Yes, and I I think I would bring on a point that David made before. I think the left owes itself an answer. Why is that so important? Is that out of proportion slightly? And does the view of the Jewish community play into this? Is it the price worth paying? Alienation of the entire ethnic group, is this the price worth paying? And actually, it's beyond the alienation of one particular group, of course, because it's what it's, it, it's for many, what it symbolizes. In some ways, anti-Semitic discourse is not just about Jews. Yes. It's about the state of play in our society. Yes. And legitimization, if you like, of othering of one particular group um, is mirrored by others. Uh, in our next podcast, we're going to be exploring anti-Muslim hatred. And there are, as you know, some similarities and some differences between those hatreds. But this is something that society is facing. Maybe anti-Muslim hatred comes from a different part of uh, British society than anti-Semitic discourses. But it does seem to be a state of play that is deeply worrying. And with this well-documented rise in prejudice and hatred, I suppose I have to ask you our final question, which is about the future. Are you optimistic or are we going to be facing this polarisation, this division, this inability to listen to one another, indeed simply to reject the positions of one another? Where, where, where do you stand and what does your research show? I would like to be optimistic. I think we all would. And perhaps there are reasons to be optimistic in the long term. What I'm less sure about uh, is about the short and the medium term. One major factor that shapes ethnic conflicts is actually the state of the economy, how wealthy people are on average. And people in groups fight over economic resources. And if we ask ourselves what actually happened to the Western society and to Britain in the past 200 years, then the answer is it's the great enrichment, which is unprecedented in pace and in scope. As a society, we are now better off than uh, compared to any point in history. And I will share a quote from an American political economist, Professor Jedra McCloskey, who created and popularized this term, great enrichment. In 1800, the average income per person all over the planet was $3 a day. Imagine living in the present uh, day Rio or Athens of Johannesburg on $3 a day. That's three-fourths of a cappuccino at Starbucks. It was and is appalling. Now the average person makes and consumes over $100 a day. And that doesn't take into account the great improvement in the quality of many things, from electric lights to antibiotics. Young people in Japan, Norway, Italy, are even in conservatively measured terms around 30 times better off in material circumstances than their great-great-great-great-grandparents. All other lips 
into the modern world. More democracy, liberation of women, improved life expectancy, greater education, spiritual growth, artistic explosion are firmly attached to the great fact of modern history, the increase by 2,900% in food, education, and travel. So, better life, better provision for basic needs, less reasons to fight over resources. And that applies to ethnic and religious groups as well. So, so far, I'm optimistic. It reminds me of Steven Pinker, David, and mm. that argument that we're mm. a less violent world. Precisely. But there's yes. going to be a but. I sense there's going to be a but. Now, so, so far we are good, but there's another force that operates in the opposite direction to great enrichment, and that force is the ethnic diversification of the Western societies. A great deal of conflict arises along religious and ethnic lines, and that's also hardly new. And let us see again, using statistics, um, how we are doing in Britain in relation to diversity. When I went to school, there was a particular term that people used in relation to countries like US, Canada, Australia. They were called immigration countries, which meant that they were set up by migrants, and for a, a long time they grew as a result of migration. Now, if we go to statistical offices of these countries today, we'll discover that still the proportion of foreign-born individuals is quite high there, 22% in Canada, 28 in Australia, and 13 in the US. If we go to the Office for National Statistics in the UK, we'll find that it estimates the British population born abroad at 14%. So today the proportion of foreign born in the UK is higher than it is in the United States. 30 years ago almost, in 1991, it was 7. So British society is diversifying and it's doing so very vigorously. So if I have to sum up all being well, we are likely to see further increases in economic prosperity. And that factor in itself can reduce conflictuality, including ethnic strife. But on the other hand, we also see increase on diversification. And which one will prevail, I cannot tell. And I don't know anyone who can. <laughs> well, on that note of uh, some uncertainty, both the optimism and, I suppose, the worry rather than pessimism of ethnic and cultural strife, I'd like to thank you, Daniel Stetsky, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Jewish Policy Research for your time. Thank you very much. Next time, we'll be examining Islamophobia and questions of anti-Muslim hatred. But for now, goodbye. <laughs>